This is episode 10 with Bernadette Olivier, CEO and co-founder of the fashion rental powerhouse, The Vault, and winner of Western Australia's Most Admired Startup Person of the Year Award. Welcome to the Wild Ones with Cam Miller podcast. I'm your host, Cam Miller, and I'm a coach, lifestyle entrepreneur, and founder of what has twice been the UK Babywear brand of the year. For the last few years, I've been supporting people around the globe to reconnect with the wild innate strength within themselves so that they can rapidly realize their goals and build incredible lives. The purpose of the Wild Ones podcast is to connect those creating wild, free, incredible lives and to share the knowledge, tools and skills we need to spend more of our time doing the things we love with the people we love when we like. If you're inspired by this podcast episode, Subscribe to the podcast and head over to cam-miller.com where you can check out and sign up for my free weekly growth guide email. It works hand in hand with the podcast to provide you with a steady stream of motivation, knowledge and practices to fuel and guide your own wild, free, incredible journey through life. In this episode, I'm talking with Bernadette Olivier. Bernadette initially pursued a career in law, at one point working with one of the biggest hedge fund managers in the world in London. She went on to change careers and lectured for a while at one point before starting The Vault, which is a women's fashion rental business mostly focused on dresses, which has been referred to as the Airbnb of fashion. Bernadette founded The Vault with her sister and two friends, which are also sisters, and they've gone on to create one of the highest growth startups in Australia. It's helping women to look their best at their events while also monetizing their wardrobe and also dramatically reducing the impact that fashion is having on the environment. If you'd like to learn how to spot a gap in the market, if you'd like to learn how to start your own business and scale it rapidly while also maintaining really strong relationships, then this episode is for you. All right, Bernadette, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. It's great great to have you on the show. So as we kick off, I, um, I'd like to mention to the listeners that we've known each other uh, a long time. I actually dug up a photo recently of us in pre-primary. Uh, with Mrs. <laughs> with Mrs. Uh, Barrow, so yeah, we go we go a long way back, and I'm really excited to kind of unpack uh, your journey here, um, your career journey, and entrepreneurial journey in particular. Oh no, it's very exciting, and yes, no, I still have the plates we made from primary. <laughs> um, so yeah, we do go a very long way. I don't know if there's many people that go that far back. So. No, no, I don't. I don't think so. So yeah, going going way back, uh, we've been on our journeys uh, here. In Applecross area. Um, so yeah, I guess moving fast forwarding then, we also shared a bit of time at uh, the University of Western Australia. I did engineering commerce and you were on the on the other side of the uh, the campus uh, studying law and arts and you moved into law after university as well. What was the, uh, I guess the question is why, why law and was that always a bit of a calling and a clear path for you going into university and afterwards? Um, look, I have a saying no and I tend to think that a lot of people in my position are the same. I did yep. pretty well at school. I got the grades and you know, by <laughs> personality, I chose, I couldn't, knew I couldn't do, so, I wasn't good enough at maths to do engineering and actually just hated maths. 
And so, um, and then also, you know, faint at the sign of blood. So that kind of not <laughs> doctor. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, just chose, I pretty much just chose the course that had the highest score that, and which is just a really bad decision-making process. Yep. And even back then I knew it wasn't for me, but yep. I didn't know what else to choose. I didn't really have any other model. My folks yep. are both teachers. Yeah. Um, I really want to, did actually really seriously think about becoming a teacher. Yeah. Um, but both my parents were really opposed to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think at that stage they were quite burnt out by their careers. My dad had worked a lot in Indigenous education, so yep. he had a pretty high-pressure job. And so I think they really just wanted me to, yeah, I think they were pretty keen on me doing more. <laughs> And that's why I chose it, which is definitely not how I hope my children choose their degree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, law is, um, you know, it's not necessarily known for helping people avoid burnout <laughs> in, terms, in, in terms of careers, having worked with a lot of lawyers as an investment banker uh, back in the day, which we'll, which we'll touch on. But I think very similar for me with engineering. I think in Perth is a relatively small city, you know, in the scheme of things. And there's these big obvious career paths. And if you don't have a clear calling as to go into something else, then it makes sense really to keep your option open to, to follow one of these clear paths, get a bit of experience, get a bit of money in your, in your account, um, do some cool things and then, and then see what you want to do after that. And I think I was always told I'll do law that you don't have to be a lawyer. There's lots of jobs at other jobs at the end of it. And yeah. that was that, but those other jobs, you have to also be really clear on what you want to become. And again, yeah. even when I finished uni, I wasn't clear on a path. So again, I just took the one that everyone takes. Well, I didn't really in the sense I went to the UK, but I become, became a lawyer after law school, which, you know, yep. very original thing to do. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that. I think uh, it did lead somewhere pretty interesting. It, it allowed you to, to move over to London for a couple of years and work for Dinika Singh uh, at TPG Axon, what it was, and uh, one of the biggest, particularly at the time, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. So can you talk a little bit about your experience there and how you transitioned into that role? Um, so I did my articles at Cleary Gottlieb, um, which is an American uh, company that was based in London and I have to say that was a huge shock to the system after <laughs> uni to go into London and working in a law firm law firm during the boom so yeah of hundred hour weeks I think I cried most days <laughs> because <laughs> I was so tired um, and then an opportunity arose to go to one of Cleary Gottlieb's um, clients which was TPG Capital and their yeah, hedge cool. fund, which was opening a London office yeah. Um, as a junior there. And um, yeah, it was a pretty, I don't really know how I got the job, to be honest. I think I just, <laughs> it was very much, the headshot was very much run like a startup in the sense that you met everybody. I've never done, even to this day, as many interviews as I did for that job. I think I interviewed yeah, cool. for almost six months. Wow. Um, but yeah, when I actually got there, you know, I think I've mentioned to you that um, everybody else was from like Harvard and Yale. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah it was an amazing experience it was I was pretty stressed for the first six months as yep. I kind of because it was pretty I was pretty much throwing the deep end and just had to learn on the job yep. um, cool. but I had the most amazing mentors and the most amazing um, group of people in London and I think because we were all expats pretty much everybody else there was American except yep. me and so 
we also um, socialised together and everyone there was pretty young because um, even Dinica, when he started the fund, was very yeah. young. And, um, yeah, it was a really great working environment, even when the global recession hit, which was pretty terrifying, being on the coalface. Yep. <laughs> right then. Um, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, so I learned a lot. It was definitely a roller coaster because joined in a boom and worked throughout the recession, which um, was really like the first time I've ever seen anything like that in my working yeah. life. Um, but in terms of how the culture of the company, um, I still think it's one of the best cultures that in terms of the working places that I've worked. Yeah, amazing. So great, a great learning experience. And obviously uh, we won't fast forward just yet, but obviously you probably learned a lot about the sort of culture you might want to um, employ uh, in starting your own startup. Definitely. I think also because it's hedge funds are smaller teams like startups and yep. they also have a really flat um, that, that flat reporting system as well that they include yeah. everybody. So, yeah, definitely a lot of things is something that we'd like to include in the vault. Yeah, well, I know, um, was it Ray Dalio and Bridgewater, the hedge fund, they're well known for having a very specific sort of high performance culture. I think it's sort of radical honesty and authenticity and other things that they employ there. But obviously these hedge funds are, you know, as you said, got some of the smartest people from around the world and they're really employing all the well-known tips, tricks, but also principles and that to get the most out of people and teams. So yeah, absolutely a, a great experience. And then you, you came back to Perth. How was the transition coming back to Perth? You moved back into a legal counsel uh, type role here, but then tried a few different things along the way as well. Yeah, well, we moved from London to Sydney first. Yep. Um, and I was at Shaw and that was also a good experience. But then my husband um, was working a lot in Perth and travelling. So it just made sense for us to move back to Perth. I yep. actually found it quite difficult to get a legal job here because I um, don't have mining experience and yep. there's not many hedge funds. <laughs> um, so I took a role at Western Power um, as a in the legal team there. And that yep. was also, you know, I was pretty... What's the word? I was, yeah, I was not optimistic about Western Power yep. when I went in having, you know, been at hedge funds and being very, you know, impressed with myself. And yep. <laughs> um, again, I, w- I was lucky enough to be such in such a part of a wonderful team with great um, mentors who, again, I learned so much from, um, particularly that a bit, you know, in terms of processes and procedures. Yep. Um, and they were going through a huge transition at the time, as well as how they manage the teams there. Um, and so being part of a bigger company, I think you learn different things there as well. Yeah, cool. I think I also, one of the biggest things that I got from Western Power was I learned to be quite confident there. Yep. Whereas at TP Jackson, I'd say I mainly appeared like a deer in headlights. So yep. <laughs> I was mainly terrified. So sort of that transitioning from junior to senior. Yep. Um, and that's, you know, and learning that, you know, I did have important things to say that I could run meetings, that I could be a leader. Yep. Um, I learned a lot of those lessons at Western Power. Yeah, well, that's great. I think looking at your career, you had 
quite a lot, you know, even if you're working in a legal type role, in terms of the types of companies and what they're focused on and that, you, you had quite a diverse uh, background, which I find often is very helpful. And, you know, if you see the way things are done quite differently in different places, it, it gives you more data with which to triangulate how you might want to do it in certain situations and that going forward as well. Um, so, no, I really like the experience. And then you actually did get to try your hand, I guess, not quite teaching, but lecturing at Curtin <laughs> University. What was the... Uh, what was the mindset? Obviously, you had your parents there. I think your sister as well, uh, also a program manager and lecturer. What was the thought behind um, doing a little bit, a bit of lecturing? I really thought that that was going to be like my dream career was lecturing. Like my sister is an academic. It looked pretty great to me. I also, yeah. as I said, always wanted to be a teacher. So I thought, oh, this would be brilliant. And um, I actually had um, my daughter Madeline at that point. And what I realized doing it is that it's quite a lonely career and yeah. it's a very like lone wolf career. Yeah. So I would kind of go to Curtin, go to my office, no one's there, yeah. <laughs> go, and, <laughs> go and teach a few lectures to, you know, 100, 200 students. But yeah. again, you're performing, you're not really engaging like in a Yeah, there's a separation. Way. Yeah. So I have to say, I actually really wasn't suited because I yep. think I'm more suited to working as part of a team and yep. being, I found it very lonely. Yeah. But I found it really lonely and um, I found the marking really punishing as well. Yep. Um, so, yeah, after really thinking I re that that was going to be the path forward for me once having children, um, I quickly aborted that mission. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. You know, you had a, uh, I said, try something very different in this case and it's often, you know, as, we, as I was kind of describing, often um, in searching for a, the right place in our career, often people don't try big enough changes. And what you end up then is you end up, you might be climbing a certain mountain and you're getting to the top of that. But then you realize you look off in the distance, there's this much bigger mountain that you never knew was actually there because you weren't trying and moving around and not. So I think you, I like the idea that you've got to find your right mountain top. And to do that, you've actually got to create some fairly big changes and work out, yeah, this is the mountain I really want to spend the next 10, 20 years of my career um, kind of climbing. So no, I like it. When along in the journey, so you did a little bit of um, compliance after that, you know, when in this journey did you start thinking entrepreneurship might be a um, career path for you? I actually had thought about it since leaving TPG Axon. Um, they invested in a lot of really interesting companies. I also, through them, spent quite a bit of time in New York when Rent the Runway had emerged. Yeah. Um, and I really, what I'd found from being in New York and trying to rent a dress yeah. was when I narrowed by the date and by my size and what I wanted to wear, I could never find anything. So I yeah. always thought that the B2C model was flawed for dress yeah. rentals. Um, when I moved back to Australia, however, like sharing economy stuff was really just getting started and that trust yeah. wasn't there. So I actually did a whole business plan when we moved back to Australia and seriously thought about start starting a frozen yogurt chain. <laughs> Yeah, we're cool. <laughs> because frozen yogurt is huge in the US. And yeah. so, you know, I was going to call it Froyo or Fruit yep. Cup. Yeah. I did the nice. whole chain. Um, but then it just required a lot of capital and, you know, pretty high risk in terms of yeah. um, our savings um, yep. as a couple. And yeah, so, product based businesses. Yeah. And um, so I did seriously think about it um, and then, you know, got a good job in Sydney. So, that kind of fell by the wayside because I just got busy. Yeah. Um, but then, like you said, when I had Madeline, those sort of thoughts 
still kept on coming. Um, yep. And Genevieve and I actually, again, kind of reached out to Adam Broadway, who ended up being our developer um, in between my two daughters. And, you know, Genevieve said, this is such a good idea. We have to do it. Yeah. Um, and then I got pregnant with my second daughter and had terrible morning sickness and was on bed rest. So, again, that kind of delayed it. Yeah. And then um, so that's where I kind of did the lecturing thing, thinking that that yep. would be a good idea. And then, um, yeah, I went out with Kim and she was saying she's also a reform lawyer and yep. she was saying I've got this idea for a startup and she had a few ideas and I told her and the next day she took me out for lunch and convinced me that we had to give it a go awesome. and um, I said well I've already brought Genevieve in who Kim didn't know at that stage yeah and then um, so Genevieve me and Kim were uh, kind of formulating this plan and very quickly Jade who's Kim's sister yep. <laughs> started helping us as well and I didn't know Jay particularly well. Genevieve and Jay didn't know each other at all. Yeah. Um, but we kind of instantly worked really well as a team and, you know, had quite a clear vision of what we wanted to create. And I think also have skill sets and personalities that complement each other. Yeah. And, yeah, so that's really how the four founders came together. Yeah, it's really interesting. One, yeah, obviously um, an all-female founding team, which is becoming um, a lot more um, prevalent uh, these days. And then... So it's two two sisters, two sets of yes, sisters. I know. Not <laughs> is, religious. We are not religious. <laughs> you know, it's very interesting that, you know, you can you can hardly think or find um, a similar founding team. So, you know, you, you're probably a good case study in a number of different areas, people considering either going into things with um, family members, um, with friends uh, as well. And am I correct in saying, are you all uh, mothers as well? Yes, we have 13 children now between <laughs> the four of us. No more children for the vault, but yes. Yep, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's that's huge. And so, you know, in terms of the timeline, so you guys came together. How long did it take you to uh, launch the business um, from that point? Probably took us six months, including build. Um, so it took us quite a lot of time to kind of work out, you know, being lawyers, um, one thing that kept on stumping us was like, what if the dress gets damaged? What if the dress yep. doesn't get returned? Yep. And then all of a sudden, like, it's really, it sounds so obvious now. We had this like brainwave, like a dress is like, it's a secondhand dress. Like people are renting out houses and cars, yeah. <laughs> and babysitting and, kid, and you know, pets. But like, okay, so your liability is, is somewhat limited. Yeah. <laughs> because, yep. you know, at the end of the day, it's a secondhand dress. Yeah. Um, and what's quite funny is because that was our biggest like risk going in, mm -hmm. we tracked it. And it, after all of that, like out of, we have insurance. And I think out of all of our transactions, um, we've only had 0.01% end in yeah. insurance claim, um, which is really pretty amazing given the volumes we've been turning over and the fact that, you know, dresses can be fairly delicate. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a, one of the big things that we had to come over in the early days. And the second one was finding a tech team because none of yep. us are technical co-founders. Genevieve had the most experience leading open universities at yep. um, Murdoch, but definitely is not a coder and definitely did not feel comfortable being promoted as the tech co-founder. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we partnered, we actually managed to go back to Adam Broadway, who yep. is at Platform OS, who were building... Um, marketplace um sort of open code yeah marketplace platform that people could build on like and um we were one of their first clients 
And um, yeah, it, it's been an amazing journey. Um, so we've been uh, with them since yeah 2017. Fantastic. So finding, obviously, you know, a lot of a lot of people things here in terms of finding the right founding team, but then also finding, you know, the right technical team or the right skills really that you need to pull together to to get the business uh, going in. And six months is, you know, really quite a short time uh, in terms of many different startups and that. Um, in terms of the business, maybe if we just take a little step back, how um, would you describe the vault as a business and what it does? I know you describe yourself as the Airbnb, is it, of uh, fashion, fashion rentals or fashion really? Um, yeah, so that's um, kind of the way, that was something that we've been, that tagline is something we've been using just so people understand what we are. Yeah. We're moving away from that because we, um, again, feel that people more easily understand dress rentals. But going yeah. back to 2017, it was a relatively new thing in Australia. And the fact that we don't own any of the stock was quite difficult often for people to understand. Yeah. So essentially we connect borrowers and lenders all over Australia um, to rent designer fashion. Um, so as a borrower, you can jump on and choose a Zimmerman dress from a lender in Sydney and request yep. that dress and the lender approves it. And then that dress is sent to you to Australia Post um, and you get to wear it for four days and then um, you return it and the lender dry cleans the dress and sends it to the next uh, borrower. Um, so we have a lot of lenders on our platform, a lot of individual lenders who kind of treat it as a side hustle or make yep. some extra money. But then we have close to 400 corporate lenders or super lenders. Um, gotcha. And they're either dress higher boutiques who list us as one of their sales channels yep. or they're just people who've actually built businesses on the vault. So we've got a lot of people who are doing that, who list a few items and get a lot of traction and then they list more and more items. And maybe they're using that money to buy more dresses or yeah. maybe. Um, but a lot <laughs> of them actually, they like. <laughs> yeah. Or they, but they are actually turning over significant amounts of money. Yeah, I like, I like the uh, tagline you used. Was it lend and earn or borrow and save? So particularly for individuals, I guess, if they've, if they've got a dress and obviously they're not wearing it every weekend, et cetera, they can, they can monetize, I guess, that asset that they've got that you, could, you can now call it an asset rather than a, yeah. um, an expense <laughs> because you, you are getting a cash flow from it. Yeah, and that was sort of the whole thought of it was that, you know, all of us own these beautiful dresses, but we can't make any income from them but you can make yep. income from cars and from bikes and from lots of other things so that was another application of the sharing economy and yep. so another reason is when we actually started researching this was something that I didn't know before uh, researching prior to jumping into the vault was um, the terrible environmental impacts of the fashion industry yep. absolutely the second largest polluter after oil yep. um, so every rental on the vault also you know offsets a huge amount of the carbon footprint of that garment as well as yep. the water pollution and textile waste which I think yeah Australia is at record levels of textile waste at the moment yeah well you know having um, started a uh, baby wear essentials business I think that uh, we were always very much focused on sustainability and, you know, the deeper you dive into it, you just see, you know, that it's a big, long supply chain. And really, you know, if you're going to go to all the trouble to make uh, something with these supply chains, like a, a dress or some baby wear or something like that, what really makes it worthwhile is to maximize the utilization after it's been bought or purchased. And uh, for us, I know we did, we weren't doing renting, but we were doing um, recycling 
Um, yeah. And we were we were sending you know dry cleaning uh, and sending uh, used garments to people in need and things like that as well. And I know in the in the baby wear space, a number of sort of marketplaces for secondhand goods uh, are out there as well. But it's um, you know I guess very very similarly we identified that you can do all this sort of stuff in the supply chain, but you need to do other stuff on the other end of the. Um, the, I guess the chain, <laughs> the consumer yeah. end of the chain as well, um, to get more utilization out of these things and therefore um, reduce the overall impact um, of them. Yeah, and I think also the vault allows people to see um, fashion as an investment that they can yep. earn income off or fashion that they can access. So instead of buying the you know copy at Sports Girl or Topshop, they yep. actually buy authentic designer fashion, which they can earn income off or they rent it. So again, you're not supporting the fast fashion industry, which is where yeah. majority of the harm to our environment comes from. Yeah, absolutely. So you can, because really that's it, you know, for a, a quality garment, um, you know, if you've got a really high quality piece of clothing, you just, you're not going to wear it out really. It's going to, it's going to last and last. And so therefore you could very easily rent that out to other people. If you've got something that's really cheap and it's just going to fall apart very quickly, um, you know, if it's not well-made, if it's not high quality materials, et cetera, um, as it, that's, that's fast fashion. And so it's good that we're, I guess, offering people these other opportunities to um, sidestep or, or transcend that. Yep, definitely. And that was a huge, once we kind of got deep into that and realised, you know, only 10% of what's donated to charity shops actually ends up being reused, both here yep. and overseas. Um, yeah, it's became a huge motivation to study in the vault. And I think sort of beginning of, end of 2019, that sustainability messaging started really resonating with our um, group user group yeah um, fantastic and so how was that journey in terms of um starting the business and acquiring units i know you were you were involved was it with the sharing hub and accelerator but how was that kind of process of launch and then getting to the point where i guess you felt you had sort of product market fit um between um your platform really and uh and your market we got quite early traction in the sense that before we had even launched we actually kind of pounded the pavement and approached a a heap of dress hire stores to get them Fantastic. on so we launch with a lot of stock because we knew with marketplaces you have to build supply and yep. demand and supply and demand is quite complicated so we actually launched with 400 items um from these dress hire stores um and then so we knew that the dress hire stores needed an online presence because a lot of them at that point were just on instagram or just had a physical bricks and mortar yep. store so we could really be that channel for them and then we also had all put in you know we're bootstrapped at this point we put in the money for the bill but we actually put an equal amount of money in yeah if not more for marketing because we were lucky enough to um right before we signed on the dotted line with platform os we um reached out to other sharing economy startups um, some of whom had used him just used platform os and you know it spoke really highly of them yeah um, fantastic. we were lucky enough to be connected to the sharing hub and meet with you know um spacer and map pause and um Canic store and zoom to all these people who are quite ahead of us in the journey but were so generous with their time um in terms of like telling us everything um that worked for them it didn't work for them um yeah, and that really made us, that kind of gave us a clear vision for the fact that we needed a pretty um, 
you know, strong marketing strategy to, to yep. acquire borrowers. Um, so we immediately invested in um, SEO, um, paid um, Facebook, which initially didn't work that well um, yep. for us. And then um, we also did some PR. Um, and we learn a lot, a lot along the way. We now know what works for us in those three groups um, yep. and paid as search as well. Um, but SEO by far has been one of the biggest channels for us and something that we watch very closely. Um, and we did, even in the pandemic, that was something that we didn't want to cut back on because yep. it's a really long-term strategy. Um, but, yeah, we uh, have invested a lot in kind of trying those different channels yeah, nice. And how, as a, um, a team of four founders, how have you kind of uh, set up the structure in terms of what the different roles that you focus on and have you found, I guess, challenges in terms of making decisions and that as you've grown? Um, I mean, I'd say one of the best things about The Vault has been the relationship between the four founders. Not that we always agree on everything, but we're always pretty respectful and yep. Um, we do complement each other like in different ways. And even sometimes when we disagree, when you look in retrospect, you will think, oh, Kim was actually right on that one. <laughs> so, yeah, good. <laughs> um, so the relationship between the four of us has been a real strength. And I think something Fantastic. that we, we probably take for granted because I know not every startup has that has that you know that's something that I never worry about really yeah, um awesome. and we put it up pretty naturally uh, Jade um really takes the lead with customer service which is a huge part of our company because you know we can control the tech and we can control the customer service in the marketplace yeah. um and there's a lot of not a lot of else that we can control yeah. um so Jade's really led that and then Kim definitely has she's previously started a business before so she's definitely kind of taken more of the corporate role um yep. in that sense and then she also with me leads a lot of the fundraising which yep. unfortunately is part of the stuff it is <laughs> um, indeed yes and um you know I probably at the moment I'm doing more of the marketing and recently we've brought on I was previously doing more of the tech side yep. of things um, but earlier this year, we brought on a CTO, Justin, who is amazing. And yep. I just wish he had been with us longer. <laughs> because having such an experienced technical person at a tech company um, turns out is a great thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Amazing. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And so he leads our technical development now and um, it's, it's going faster than it's ever gone before. Fantastic. Because, yeah, you did grow by, was it over 400% in uh, in 2018. Did you have any growing pains? Did that put pressure on you guys as uh, the founding team or as individuals as you, as you grew at that sort of rate? It did because we didn't have a team. So everything, yeah. like we didn't have anyone in customer service, everything that was getting done was being done by us at, you know, like yeah. 11 o'clock at night. And, <laughs> you know, it can be... It can be pretty challenging um, also because we like every, we were growing really, really quickly towards the end of that year and yep. just making sure that you keep up with um, like your customer service standards yep. because from the beginning um, we had a pretty clear vision that an understanding that we were more than an e-commerce store, that when people rent a dress, they're renting a dress for like their sister's engagement party or their birthday. It's quite an emotional yep. purchase and transaction. And likewise, people lending dresses, people are very attached to their possessions. So, you know, it is an emotional, especially if anything goes wrong. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we learned 
Um, we also kind of hired quickly because of that. And some of those hires didn't work out. So we learned the yep. hard way in that sense. Yeah. Um, you have to take time hiring and you have to hire the right people. Yep. Um, and now, yeah, we, unfortunately, 2020 was a pretty rough year for dress rentals. Yeah, with COVID. <laughs> um, with COVID. So we did have to lay off quite a lot of our team at that point um, because we just didn't know what the future hold. But luckily, um, yep we were managed to rehire um, quite a lot of them. So, yeah, right now we have an awesome team and, yeah, our customer service is, you know, amazing and we've got a great tech team. So, um, yeah, it's been a really interesting journey, especially the last couple of years. <laughs> I can only imagine. Have you found have anything in terms of different personal practices, exercise, meditation, anything like that being, uh, you know, important for helping you maintain balance um, as you've grown the business? Definitely exercise. I think yep. is something that, you know, we all take, we always encourage each other at the office to go for a run or go, you know, to the gym or Pilates, whatever it is, just because yep. you do need to get out of the headspace because you're so intense when you're at the office. Yep. I think the other thing that's been, so I think two, three things happened last year when it was such a difficult year because, it, it, you know, it was really challenging for us mentally as well. Yep. Um, was number one, you know, we really, like firstly was that we realised that we were resilient. We realised yep. that, you know, pretty much the worst thing that could happen to dress rentals happened. Yep. Which was, we survived. You know, complete lockdown. Surviving is winning. <laughs> we survived and we were okay and that was amazing. And also that, you know, personally we were okay. Like I think yep. you, sometimes the business feels like you, Yep. So, and, and kind of having that separation for me yep. personally has been a, a big mental change. And then um, I think the other realisation is that it's a marathon and not a sprint. Yeah. So you've got to pace yourself. So we can't burn out. We can't afford to be working till, you know, 11, 12 every night. Yeah. Um, because it is a, it is a long journey. Um, yeah. And even though people think startups are really short lifespan we have to we have to kind of just pace ourselves yeah no they actually give anything yeah minimum really five seven years until um you know a liquidity event or something with startups so people really do need to be in for the long term and a lot of the time you know you're very lucky to find you know a good pace in terms of growth early on but a lot of the time there's just a lot of learning that has to happen for the founding team and the, the team more generally to, to either to get to that point of sort of product market fit where the business really starts um, rushing along. Um, and in that in between, you've just got to understand, try to understand what the pace of the business actually is. And obviously you're trying to edge that up over time, but you can't really just try to, you know, push it out of the park every day by working late hours and all this sort of stuff. Whereas you said, you'll, you not only lose sort of energy in that over time, but you lose creativity and stuff like that as well as you get tighter and, and um, push yourself more with the business. Yeah, definitely. And I think also you don't make always the wisest decisions when you're kind of, kind of coming from, such an emotional place either i think we're making yep. better decisions now um because we have we we're not so our identities aren't as much as we believe they were prior yep. to COVID. i think we yeah. make some better decisions now yeah that's fantastic i think you know when you were talking earlier about 
co-founders and decisions. I think that's one thing I learned um, from my first startup is the importance of, of using data and cool heads really to make decisions. A lot of people have different personal views or emotional uh, connections to different ways of doing things, et cetera. And it can be really helpful to maintain good relationships um, with your founding team, et cetera, to use data, I ask the customers <laughs> what they think, et cetera, um, and, you know, develop strategies based on, based on that as well. You know, in terms of the, the journey, it's been an in- incredible journey. You guys are doing um, fantastically, particularly through the challenges of COVID and that. What at this stage would you say you would have done differently if you could do it all over again? Um, lots of things. <laughs> um, I think... Um, I think- you definitely have to be careful with service providers. You always yep. have to keep them in check. There's a definitely um, something set and forget that, you know, you can get caught up with different service providers where if you do a monthly call, it might not be enough. So we yep. you know, tend to more do weekly calls because every dollar counts. Yep. Um, I think also... Yeah, I mean, it's so hard because kind of every bad decision leads to, you know, it leads to where you are today. Yeah. I think I definitely would have brought a CTO on board earlier because yeah. it has given us so much power and it gives us, it, you just feel more control, more in control yeah. of your own destiny. Um, so if we could have brought it on, uh, brought on Justin earlier, that would have been, yeah. I think that we would have gotten to grow faster. But, you know, yeah. at that point, we always were thinking about where that money would go. Yep. Um, you know, it's really a hard decision when you're not, you know, $5 million in the bank. Yeah. Um, and then um, I think the other thing is, um, yeah, we've expanded our team in the Philippines mm-hmm. and they're amazing. And again, I wish we'd done that earlier because that would have taken a lot of pressure off the founders. So all our customer service team, we've got yep, the head of yeah. customer service here yep. and then Jade also leads it. But our Filipino employees are amazing. They're, yep. And you know, we really have a one-team approach because we're all quite remote. Yep. Um, so Justin's in, um, we have, you know, tech team in India and in the East Coast. Fantastic. And then, um, yeah, I really wish that we'd done that earlier because I think that could have taken a lot of burden off the four of us. Yeah, and so they is the the team in the Philippines that do they work solely um, for the vault? Yeah, so we originally pre-COVID went through an agency, and now we just yep. recruit individually, and they all just work from home because unfortunately the Philippines has largely been in lockdown. Yeah, um, but they're amazing. They're truly amazing people, and they're so great at what they do, and they brought so much to the team. Um, and yeah, they're just absolutely professionals when it comes to customer service. Yeah, awesome. I know I know a number of um, Australian entrepreneurs and businesses that are using um, outsourcing out of the Philippines and are all really happy with it. I know they've had some problems with the weather up there in the last year or the typhoons and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but uh, no, it's fantastic. Um, you know, not only for businesses here, but obviously the opportunity for people in countries like the Philippines to get inside into businesses like the Vault and uh, to learn and, and to grow with them. Yes. No, um, no, it's been really positive. So yeah, I definitely, anybody who needs a customer service team, I can't speak more highly of our team in the Philippines. Fantastic. And so um, what's the next for the vault there? I know you guys, uh, are you guys all across Australia at this point? We are. Um, and we definitely want to look into international expansion. I think also probably what's next for us is um, we really want to start integrating with um, 
brands and designers and really being yeah. part of that journey. Like it's always been the next part of the funnel for us. Um, and so I think that that's in terms of, you know, um, things that we're focused on in the next six to 12 months. Um, that's yeah, big, enormous for us. And then also expanding into other um, jurisdictions because um, even though there's still travel restrictions, not, we don't actually physically need to be in other areas yep. to launch Vault. Yeah, got you. No, I like it. So how then can people um, at the moment, mostly in Australia, how can they connect with the Vault and, uh, and try your services? Well, um, yeah, so we've got, we're actually rebuilding. So we're going to have a new fancy website soon. Um, well, it's already pretty fancy. <laughs> yeah, so, but right now, if you want to become a lender, you can just create an account and list your garments. You just have to then put in your bank details so you can get paid and um, some ID verification, which is all done um, by our yep. payment gateway. And then as a borrower, if you've got an event or you want to book a dress, you can jump on search by your size or designer or occasion and um, find your item, request your item, and then um, the lender will approve. And if you ever need help, we've got um, a big team of customer service people who can help you um, find what you're looking for or kind of talk you through how to go um, about getting an item on the vault. Fantastic. Well, girls out there, I highly recommend uh, they give it a try. Who knows? You might have a um, a big asset sitting there in in, in your wardrobe that you could uh, monetize and, and see a bit of value out, particularly um, during the economy at the moment. So Bernadette, thanks so much for um, sharing your journey and being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So there you have it, guys and girls. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to the podcast and head over to cam-miller.com to sign up for my free weekly growth guide email. If you're really loving the podcast, please also share it with family and friends and leave a review on iTunes or whichever platform you might be listening on. I can't wait to share the next episode with you.